From CPR News in Alamosa, this is Colorado Matters. The San Luis Valley is a big potato producer, second only to Idaho. But a long trade dispute with Mexico is leaving farmers in the lurch. Farmers typically in the U.S. always think that we're the victims of most trade agreements, and in this case, we seriously are. Then should urban Colorado be able to use water from the San Luis Valley? And if they did, what would it mean for rural farming? And we'll take a spiritual journey in one of the state's oldest churches. This is a structure, is one of the largest adobe buildings that are being built in the 21st century. And so just from that perspective, it is a monument, but I think it's also a monument to a very special history in Colorado and New Mexico. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. On the road again I just can't wait to get on the road again Live from Alamosa, this is Colorado Matters On the Road Again from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lowe. The San Luis Valley produces more fresh potatoes than anywhere in the U.S. other than Idaho. And farmers here are welcoming a recent ruling by the Supreme Court of Mexico. It cleared the way for them to sell potatoes there. But they're also skeptical because the court decision is just the latest round in a trade dispute that's dragged on for nearly two decades. I'm joined by Jim Ehrlich of the Colorado Potato Administrative Committee. Welcome, Jim. Hi. And Dave Warsh, who grows potatoes on his farm in Center, Colorado. Hi, Dave. Hi, Avery. Before we get into the weeds on the trade dispute, Dave, I'd like to get your reaction to the Mexican Supreme Court ruling. Are you optimistic that you'll be shipping more potatoes south of the border soon? No. (laughs) Um, This has been a long-going battle, and I think it'll continue to have roadblocks put up. (laughs) You're not optimistic. Um, Jim, Back in 2003, the U.S. and Mexico, it signed an agreement that seemed pretty straightforward. What was the deal? Well, basically the deal was um, Mexico would get access for their avocados and we would get access for our potatoes. And it was a phased deal for us. Uh, We were supposed to get the 26-kilometer region along the border of Mexico the first year. The second year, we would get the northern tier of states of Mexico. And then in the third year, we would get access to the entire country. So those markets where American potatoes would be allowed to be sold. Right. So the United States did let avocados in per the agreement. What's happened with selling potatoes in Mexico? Well, we sell around $50 million worth of potatoes in Mexico annually, and that's for the entire United States. For us, we sell about... Oh, I'd say 8% of our crop annually, and that's uh, roughly maybe 1.8 million pounds a year. 
You said that the United States sells about 50 to 60 million dollars of potatoes in Mexico. Just to contrast that, what's the value of the avocados from Mexico that are sold in the United States? Uh, it's over $2 billion now. Well, that's a pretty, pretty drastic difference. Tell me about the roadblocks that can still exist even after the Supreme Court ruling. The National Potato Council has hired a team of lawyers, Mexican lawyers, to navigate the legal system down there. And what they have been told is that there are still, even though the Supreme Court ruled in our favor, there are still district cases uh, pending, which, you know, in the United States, that would make no sense at all. But they're using that as a reason to uh, not move forward. And a matter of fact, this week they had a case in Sonora and they met with the Sonoran judge down there and he he really didn't give them any positive news. He didn't give them any negative news either, but he just basically stalled. Like that's kind of their tactic right now. It's just stalling. They're also using sanitary reasons to block the sale of U.S. potatoes. Tell me about that. Dave, you want to answer that one? Sure. I'm going to go back to Mexico just remains almost entirely closed to U.S. fresh potato exports. They've put up roadblocks in the form of sanitary or phytosanitary issues, saying that there's pests coming in on U.S. potatoes that are already prevalent and uncontrolled in Mexico. They're using a whole host of what I would call illegitimate quarantine arguments. So you said phytosanitary, that means plant sanitary. What would you need to do to meet those requirements? We've jumped, to Jim's point about this being a long process, we've jumped through every request that they've provided or every roadblock that they've put up in the last almost 20 years now. Um, Every time we jump through one hoop, they throw up a new one. And they say that it was, they were afraid the potatoes would be planted when they were shipped down there from the U.S. to Mexico. So we have a certain amount of times that, depending on when it is in the season, that they've been sprout-nipped. They've been treated so that they won't sprout and couldn't be planted as viable seed in Mexico. We've jumped through the hoops of package size. Most potatoes in Mexico are sold on bulk displays, and yet they want us to package potatoes in bags that are 20 pounds or less so that when they get down there, somebody has to take them out of those 20-pound bags and dump them into the bulk display. They want a warning on the label that says that those potatoes aren't to be sowed, even though the bag is very seldom going to be seen in the marketplace. Um, Every time we turn around, we've agreed to and done everything that they've asked, and they're just getting better at asking for more, and they continue to get more delays through their government or through the courts. Jim, why is Mexico so protective when it comes to potatoes? That's a really good question. They they have a very strong potato organization, a group of growers. It's a very small group that basically control the market. And they've been referred to as a cartel in the past, a potato cartel. They're very um, well-connected politically. And In Mexico, the average consumer only eats about 35 pounds of potatoes a year, where here in the United States, I think the latest information I looked at was like the average American consumer eats about 110, 112 pounds of potatoes a year. The Mexican consumer really doesn't have the supply that they maybe want. Prices are kept artificially high in Mexico. 
and uh, they have a good deal. They don't want to lose that deal. Dave, give us a sense of how many potatoes you grow on your farm, just in rough numbers. Um, at least 200,000 100-pound bags, which is our standard of, of measurement for potatoes. And you farm about 1,500 acres? About 500 acres of potatoes typically, though. Yep. What's the opportunity that you see in Mexico? Truthfully, I think it would be great for the U.S. in general. Um, Colorado, just because of our close proximity, would probably gain a, a larger share. But I think the biggest opportunity in Mexico is I really think that this is, is a consumer issue. I think that the people in Mexico, the poorer people, don't get to buy potatoes. That's why their consumption's so low. We believe potatoes are a great vegetable. They're the favorite vegetable in the United States. I think with good access at a fair price in Mexico, they'd be the favorite vegetable down there too. And I really think, I don't want to get conspiracy theorists here, but the government of Mexico has done a good job of keeping what is a very good, stable food source out of the hands of people. So I, I don't understand why. Jim, is there a way to quantify the economic impact on a larger scale, how much farmers expected to be making selling potatoes in Mexico by now versus how much they're actually making? Well, you know, the market fluctuates, but typically prices in Mexico are for potatoes are double what they are in the United States or close to that. Potatoes USA, which is the marketing order for potatoes here in the United States, they've done the research to show that that market could be a, at a minimum a $200 million market for the United States. Jim, what kind of political support are you getting on this issue? Truthfully, we've had good political support. Secretary Vilsack, you know, it, I was really encouraged when he got reappointed as Secretary of Agriculture because when he worked in the Obama administration, he was actively engaged on this issue and he understood it. So, you know, it's really encouraging that he's back in that position. And I'm sure he's fully engaged in it. I know he is. You know, we'd like to see him shut off uh, avocado shipments. <laughs> Truthfully, they can't do that. You know, realistically, they can't. But the Mexicans want more access for other regions in their country to ship avocados. And at this point, our government has said no, not until this problem is fixed. One of the key things is, assuming that they do open the access up for the entire country, we want it to be uh, durable and long lasting. We don't want them to throw another roadblock up a year from now or six months from now or, you know, so I think that's where the government really has to be engaged in the long run. David, you have been following this dispute since the original deal was struck nearly 20 years ago. At this point, how are you feeling? Um, after 20 years, it, it goes back to your question at the beginning. Do I believe there will be access for U.S. fresh potatoes? On all levels, we've done everything. Yes, I think we should be there. I think our government, Democratic or Republican administrations have supported this. It's a trade issue. Farmers typically in the U.S. always think that we're the victims of most trade agreements. And in this case, we seriously are. Um, we made it all the way through NAFTA. NAFTA had to be changed or was changed. Now we have the new CF whatever. Um, and uh, once again, 
potatoes was completely negotiated in it, and we're still not there. So I'm extremely frustrated. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your time. Thank Thank you. you. Jim Ehrlich is executive director of the Colorado Potato Administrative Committee in Monte Vista. Dave Warsh is a farmer in Center, Colorado. The San Luis Valley produces more fresh potatoes than anywhere in the U.S. other than Idaho. Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, goes the old saying in the West. Well, there is a new fight in Colorado's San Luis Valley. An investment company wants to pump water out of the underground aquifer and pipe it to the fast-growing Denver suburbs 200 miles away. State Senator Cleve Simpson represents the San Luis Valley. He's also a farmer and serves as general manager of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. Senator, welcome. Uh, Good morning. Renewable Water Resources is the name of the investment company out of Denver. They're backed by some big names, including former Governor Bill Owens. What's the proposal in a nutshell? The proposal in a nutshell is to drill wells into the confined aquifer deep system here in the San Luis Valley, um, at at least as it's presented, and pump 22,000 acre-feet of water out of the valley, pipe it um, through the north end of the valley over Poncho Pass, up the Arkansas River, up Trout Creek Pass, and then deliver that water into the South Platte Basin, which then makes it marketable to a variety of interests on the Front Range. That's a real generalization of it. And like you said, they want to buy 22,000 acre feet. An acre foot of water is enough to cover an acre of land one foot deep. And just for reference, a football field is about the size of an acre, and an acre foot is roughly enough to support two households for a year. So this Correct. proposal wouldn't take more water out of the aquifer than is already being used. Instead, it would buy existing rights, for example, what a farm is using for irrigation. Can you explain why? Yeah, it, it's a simple um, analysis or, or uh, consideration is the basin, the Rio Grande Basin, is highly overappropriated. Um, surface waters, are more, more applications and rights exist for surface water than is available and alternatively or likewise groundwater fits the same characterization and the Colorado Supreme Court affirmed that in 2006 it said there is no unappropriated groundwater left in our system so if you want a new appropriation to move water out of this basin or or consume any volume of water out of here um, we we now have requirements that say that's a a one-for-one proposition that says if you want to new appropriation for 22,000 acre feet of water, you have to acquire 22,000 acre feet of water being consumed today and essentially dry up the acres that those uh, acre feet of water irrigate. And that that's the only way you can acquire a, a new appropriation in, in this space. And so we call it a one for one replacement. It makes plant. a lot of sense to buy these existing rights. Yeah. Um, People might say that there is nothing wrong with selling water to the highest bidder. What concerns you about moving water out of the San Luis Valley? Well, look, we've we've been through this proposition on a routine basis, uh, or really the first one probably since 19... First one was in, in the early 70s to do something very similar. And we, we do this, have this conversation about every decade. But what it really boils down to is, you know, the San Luis Valley is a a community and a culture and economies driven by irrigated agriculture. So the the one-for-one one proposition means, you know, if you're going to take 22,000 acre feet of water out of here, it, it basically means you're going to have to buy and dry 
somewhere in, in excess of 10,000 acres of irrigated land and dry it up. And that, you know, that, that has long lasting impacts to our community. And these propositions in the past have really kind of galvanized the community to come together and uh, really stand up as one and go, this is not good for the San Luis Valley. And it's certainly not good for the state of Colorado. And when you say buy and dry, can you give me maybe a picture of what those impacts on the community could look like? Sure. I mean, it affects tax bases. It affects, uh, you know, the, the the stream of inputs from, I mean, electricity and um, seed and equipment and fuel and fertilizer and uh, property values then will essentially decrease in those um, irrigated acres that are dried up, which have impacts to school districts and fire districts and special districts and places like the river and water conservation district. So yeah, it's just a, you know, a bit of a domino effect to go once, if you allow this to happen and because the value of water is increasing, you know, exponentially on the front range, the pressure is you, you, you run the risk of fundamentally changing what um, rural Colorado in particular, the San Luis Valley looks like a, a decade or two decades from now. And that's problematic for, for us. And I mean, I, I'm a little biased. I was born here in Alamosa and, and grew up in the Valley and um, have been very public about, you know, my, my water rights aren't, aren't for sale. I, 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 uh, I think there's a better path forward for us than um, drying the place up. And you said that this is a proposal that something similar comes along pretty frequently and it's come along for a long time. What is different about the pitch this time? Um, yeah, so they certainly, um, I think they have learned from prior proposals. Um, a couple of different facets to consider this time is, uh, again, at least publicly and on, and on their website, they've uh, advertised in addition to buying the 22,000 acre feet of water that they would need to buy to uh, support their new proposal. They likewise, they, they would also buy um, more than that and retire it so that it really really stays in the aquifer as a as a benefit to the system um, and, and at times it's been twice as much I think on their website now it's really kind of defined it trying to buy 31,000 acre feet of water again with the, the idea that 22 would be shipped out um, but the balance would stay here and remain in the aquifer um, so that's a, a bit of a new twist for these proposals and, th and then the next one is um, they've been public about establishing a $50 million community fund, but um, there's not much clarity about what that is or who controls that. The, the group um, came to the Rio Grande Water Conservation District um, in December of 18 with this proposal and asked the district to manage these funds for them to, you know, manage the funds to buy water and potentially the community community fund. But that, that really hasn't been um um, very well described yet of what the $50 million, and it, at least initially, it's a one-time investment in, in a community fund for somebody in the Valley. So that, those are really the two things that uh, make make them stand out a little different than proposals in the past. And they, look, they've been public about saying that we have concerns that if you open the floodgate here and you allow 22,000 acre feet, it just, it becomes a free for all and, and we'll lose, you know, a hundred or 200,000 acre feet of water. They've been very 
um, up front that said they would limit their pipeline size and they have no interest in um, exporting more than the 22,000 acre feet of water. But we, being the water community here and the greater community, are a little skeptical about that proposal and, and worry about there, you know, we become the Owens Valley of Colorado. And that's what happened in California, essentially. There are some folks who are interested in selling their water rights. Renewable Water Resources says they'll pay three times the market rate. And if they could use every right they've been offered, they'd be oversubscribed. Like we've said, that's an if because it needs legal review. Do you expect that they'll make their target? Well, I mean, I, I don't have any insight other than, you know, again, I've been part of this community for 50 years and um, I've not yet met an individual or, or a farmer or a water right holder that has indicated they're willing to sell their water right um, to be exported out of the valley. And it was purely by coincidence, but uh, the district and the water community here really started working together collaboratively to offer an alternative. And again, our motivation was trying to create and maintain a sustainable aquifer system here where we were in the, in the process of offering folks um, money for their water rights, but with the, with the only intention and the only commitment to be that it would remain in the aquifer and help, you know, again, create a, a healthier system. So uh, we'll see. And when you advertise the three times the market value, we, we really don't have a market established for water yet here. Um, I can tell you there is an established market on the other end and the front range. And, and I mean, it's approaching, it's, it's exceeds eighty ninety thousand $90,000 an acre foot. So mm. publicly what um, uh, has been offered here is paying producers either $2,000 an acre foot or $2,500 an acre foot. So I, I, it's difficult to understand that um, presentation that they're offering three times the market value. And we, we just really don't have an established market value for water yet. You know, there is a problem with water in the valley. If proposals like this aren't the solution as you see it, in about the minute we have left, could you briefly explain what you do think a solution could be? Uh, again, without a doubt, the basin is challenged with uh, our demand exceeds our supply. So we've actively come together as groundwater uh, producers to assess fees on ourselves and raise money to do a number of things. We, we can uh, water conservation efforts, uh, uh, irrigation efficiencies, um, temporary and permanent fallowing, and continue to look for and try to develop um, different crops that are less water uh, water consumptive. So it kind of boils down to that, that we know we have a challenge in front of us and Mother Nature has not been very helpful over the last 20 years. Um, and you know, we have about 500,000 irrigated acres here that um, really going forward over the next decade does not have a full water supply. So we, we think we can find the solutions and work together as a community to do this and not have the huge negative impacts of um, shipping water out of, mm -hmm. out of the valley. Well, Senator Cleveson, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was wonderful. Appreciate being here. Thank you very much. Senator Cleve Simpson is a native of San Luis Valley. He also serves as general manager of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. I'm Avery Lill, live in Alamosa. You're with CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? 
What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Colorado's Independent Redistricting Commission is still tweaking maps to redraw the state's political lines. One big part of that process is deciding which communities should be grouped together and which can be split up. For Southern Colorado, this poses a unique challenge. In Pueblo, for example, the population isn't big enough to anchor its own congressional district, and what happens in Pueblo could affect people in the San Luis Valley. Initial proposals could combine Pueblo with entirely new communities on the eastern plains, separating it from the western slope for the first time in 40 years. Here's CPR's Binta Brookland. Southern Colorado has a rich, diverse mix of people dating back generations. You know, up until 1848, the border between the U.S. and Mexico was officially the Arkansas River through southern Colorado. Zach Workowich gives tours of that history at the El Pueblo Museum in downtown Pueblo. It's on the site of an old trading post, not far from where the Arkansas River runs through the city. Workowich says even after the U.S.-Mexico border moved south to the Rio Grande in Texas, Pueblo continued to be a gateway of cultures and ethnicities. We see it as the borderlands between the mountains and the plains as well, where the river leaves the mountains and becomes part of the Great Plains. Pueblo's history is shaped by factors unique to Colorado. It has strong ties to the steel mill and coal industry that brought in waves of immigrants. At one point, about 40 different languages were spoken at the mill. Today, more than half of Pueblo County is Latino. Saul Trujillo raised his seven children in Pueblo. He says how people moved throughout Colorado is still relevant to today. Well, the tradition was the migration occurred from northern New Mexico into the San Luis Valley, into Trinidad, the mines, Aguilar, Walsenburg, and then that migration moved to Pueblo. And then some of that migration of the next generation moved to Denver. In the San Luis Valley and here in Pueblo, we are not the folks who crossed the border. We are the folks whom the border crossed. And that, that historic reality, that shared history, and the historic neglect that our communities have faced together, it makes us a significant community of interest as one. Saul's daughter, Teresa, is a Democratic community organizer. She's been trying to get regular people in Pueblo involved in the redistricting process. She's been urging them to attend public hearings and give feedback about the proposed maps. She says it's difficult for people here to see how a political map could actually make some type of difference in their lives. You know, Washington, D.C. feels a million miles away. Even the state capital from here in Pueblo can feel a million miles away. And so it's hard to get folks engaged in this and understanding how this will impact our local politics, how this will impact what our city councils look like, our county commissioners, our school district boards. It's hard to get folks to connect to that. Pueblo has more registered Democrats than Republicans, but they tend to be more conservative than voters in blue strongholds to the north. Democratic state lawmakers from Pueblo often go against the party and oppose things like gun control bills. And the county narrowly voted for Donald Trump in 2016. 
The Trump campaign also rallied supporters here last year. The Republican way is the American way. The redistricting commission's first map moves Pueblo and most of the San Luis Valley from the Western Slope-based 3rd Congressional District to the Eastern Plains-focused 4th. Both districts are heavily Republican, but people of all political stripes here say their big priority is to ensure that they get to stay together with communities that share common concerns. History is a big unifier here. So is agriculture. Potato crops in the San Luis Valley, sugar beets, wheat, and Pueblo's famous green chilies. That's the sound of green chilies roasting at Carl Musso's family farm. He's a retired farmer. His grandfather immigrated to the Pueblo area from Italy, and now Musso's son and grandson have taken over. He was just by my side from when he was one years old. He just, he just took to it and... He's like me, he liked it. My son plants about 15, 16 different varieties of peppers. Like most people I spoke to, Musso said he doesn't follow politics closely and wasn't really aware of what was happening with redistricting. For people shopping at his family's farm stand, it wasn't on their minds either. Erica Springer moved to Pueblo from out of state about a decade ago, and she said one thing to really note about this place is how much people appreciate their community. People are proud to be from Pueblo. There are so many welcome people, and I thought there was a lot of new experiences. Even though Pueblo has its distinct identity, not enough people live here for it to be its own congressional district. Still, leaders here hope the final map doesn't dilute their unique voice at the state capitol or in Washington. State Senate President Leroy Garcia represents Pueblo. There need to be significant changes. That's undisputed. And and you hear the commission saying, we're listening. These are not going to be the final maps. We know that. So now the question is, well, how do we get to a map that better serves those communities? That question, raised by State Senator Leroy Garcia, is on the minds of a lot of people in southern Colorado. CPR's Benta Berkland produced that story for the redistricting season of our politics podcast, Purplish. A small Catholic church in the San Luis Valley is building a monumental project, a giant labyrinth to encourage prayer and honor the region's unique history. Our Lady of Guadalupe is the oldest parish in Colorado. It's in Conejos, just outside of Antonito, about 30 miles south of Alamosa. Alfonso Abeta is a member of the church board. Hi, Alfonso. Hello there. And Ronald Rael designed the labyrinth. He grew up in the San Luis Valley and teaches architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. Hi, Ronald. Hi, Avery. Alfonso, before we talk about the labyrinth, you and your family have been part of this church community for a long time. I think your wife grew up in this church? Yes. And the two of you were married there as well, right? Yes, we were married in 1961. This was a bequest that kicked off this project but it never really mentioned a labyrinth. Tell us about your donor and her vision. Well, there's a, a Miss Salazar was also a native from here. She moved to Denver. She never got married. And when she passed away, she left us $40,000 and asked the church not to use it for maintenance or anything like that, just a memory of the people in the church. So, Ronald, when you thought about a sanctuary to encourage prayer and they ask you to consider that, why did a labyrinth speak to you? 
Well, the committee had ideas about how they could bring people together around the mysteries of the rosary to celebrate their faith. And some of their references were other sorts of spiritual journeys that are in the region, like Chimayo, which every year people take a long pilgrimage to, or the Stations of the Cross in San Luis, which is also on a hillside, and people walk up that hillside. So this idea of a journey was important to the group, but they had only a small plot of land adjacent to the church. And so the idea was, how can we create not a journey outward, but a journey inward? And the labyrinth is exactly that. It's both an inward journey because you're walking a long distance in a small area, but it's also an inward spiritual journey as well. I love that you can have a journey in a small space. What is the difference between a maze and a labyrinth? The difference between a maze and a labyrinth is that a maze, the intention of a maze is for one to get lost, but a labyrinth has only one path. And so as a labyrinth, um, the people who move within this space are taking the singular path, which is the path of the recitation of the rosary, but also a single path that always brings you back to the center of the space. Alfonso, what was your first reaction to the idea of a labyrinth? Well, I didn't know what it was to start with. <laughs> but i uh, seen the design and how it was going to be uh, built and... Uh, I thought it was a very good idea myself. What do you like about it? Well, I, knowing the faith of my mother-in-law, she used to pray the rosary and make the kids go every day to go and pray with the rosary. So we thought at that time, my wife and I, that it would be a great idea to have uh, the, something about the rosary. And since our settlers depended on the rosary for faith and not also for survival, they, uh, that was why we decided to build the, the labyrinth with the, the rosary. Tell me about your roots in the valley. I know that this, the historical significance of this labyrinth is important. Tell me about your family's roots here. Well, I was born and raised in April the 25th, 1938. I was born in a ranch. I was uh, not a Catholic at that time. I married, converted, and so I became a Catholic. Ronald, will you tell me a little bit about your family's history? Sure. My family's history is that they were also um, original settlers of Cuneos County and members of the Catholic Church. And when you were thinking about the significance of the rosary as you were designing this labyrinth, what were you thinking about? Well, the rosary is a series of meditations that accounts for the life and death of Jesus Christ. And it's broken down into four, I guess we would call them chapters, and there's five stories within it. And so the organization of this labyrinth is broken up into these four sections. And within them, there are these five chapels. So as you're, as you're moving through the space and praying the rosaries and moving through the beads on the rosary that represent those stories you actually have the opportunity to walk through the space, but also have spaces for rest um, where you can reflect upon these stories along the way. They're like small chapels. And there are other artists who are involved in this project as well who have made um, retablos or uh, sort of bronze um, sculptures that tell these stories as well in a more visual form. 
And to honor the cultural heritage of the area, the labyrinth will be built out of adobe. What's the significance of that? Sure. Well, most of the buildings that were constructed in not only Conejos County, but in the San Luis Valley and all throughout northern New Mexico were made out of adobe until around the 1950s or so. And so it has a long cultural heritage of being a building material. And so as part of the goals of this to reflect the heritage of the area, we all decided that it would be constructed out of adobe. And adobe is, is mud brick dried in the sun. And Mr. Aveta has taken on the challenge of making all these adobes, which is really incredible because it will require about 30,000 of these adobes to be made. Wow. Alfonso, what goes into making the adobe? Well, first of all, I, I had to get learn a little bit about how to make adobes, which I had never made adobe in my life. So I asked questions of the old timers that did make adobes. And of course, Ronald Rail also had a lot of knowledge in making adobes, and he probably learned it from the old timers. So uh, I asked the question of how do we make adobes? What kind of soil do we have to use? And this old timer says, well, he says we need 70% sand and 30% clay. So then we had to find the soil that was close to that so that we didn't have to mix both of that. And this old timer told me, you live right in the place where I used to make the adobes. And that is the best soil you could have. So that's where I started hauling that adobe from this mesa, which is right next to the mountain, which my son Aaron owns. I gave it to him. But anyway, we... There's where we're getting our soil, which was the closest to the 30% clay and 70% sand. And that would have kept the adobes from cracking. At first, all my adobes were cracking. I didn't know why. It was had too much clay in it. So that was one of the things that I had to learn the hard way. How many adobes have you finished so far? We have about 20,000 adobes already made. And right now, I think it's going to be more like that. We're going to need about 25,000 adobes instead of 30,000. So I'm very close to completing the construction of the adobes. You said you learned a lot about making the adobes from the old timers. Are you also teaching a younger generation how to make adobes as you go? Well, I had a young generation help me construct them. Ronald, how often do you get to design projects now that you're teaching? Uh, Well, I maintain a practice in addition to teaching where I'm always designing things, but not always designing for the community from where I am. And it's a really a pleasure to be able to have this opportunity. And you asked, uh, you know, Mr. Abate to learn from the old timers. He is the younger generation learning how to make a (laughs) dafiance. Yeah, yeah. You also studied great architecture around the world. I wonder if you see this labyrinth as a destination that will draw tourists interested in prayer or history. Ronald? I think so, because, I mean, if we just look at it from the perspective of the 25,000 adobes that are on the ground right now, that makes this larger than the largest adobe manufacturing sites in the world. And so it's a monumental endeavor that's being taken on here. And so this as a structure is one of the largest adobe buildings that are being built in the 21st century. And so just from that perspective, it is a monument, but I think it's also 
a monument to a very special history in Colorado and New Mexico, and it's going to draw the descendants for, who have scattered all over the world back to their home from where they came. Alfonso, do you think the labyrinth will draw folks who are not Catholic as well? Oh, yes. In fact, we're getting uh, uh, visitors because they come to visit the oldest church in Colorado. And we have uh, Lutherans come around and they also uh, believed in the in the rosary. So I, I answer questions almost daily now that we're building it from the tourists. So people are already seeing it in progress. When do you hope to complete it? Well, we hope to complete the walls by, by hopefully by October the 15th, the 1st of November, before it really starts to freeze. Uh, we hope to have an opening the first part of the spring of completion. That's really exciting. Well, I just want to thank you both for sharing. Thank you, Avery. Thanks. Alfonso Abeta is on the board of the historic Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in Conejos, which is building a prayer labyrinth. Ronald Rael is a professor of architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. He designed the labyrinth. Just down the road in Antonito, the spires of another unique building catch the light. It's known as Cano's Castle. It's covered in old hubcaps, aluminum cans, and other scrap metal and objects. On the inside, there's even a mosaic of sorts made out of cascading, colorful plastic water bottles. Denverite's Kevin Beatty stopped by the castle and talked with its king, Dominic Cano Espinoza. I lived in Guadalupe. That's where I was born. And then uh, after I came back from Vietnam, I came to take care of my uh, grandma and grandpa here in Antonito. So I've been living in Antonito since 1980. I started the castles in 1980. Espinoza says he started working on the castle as a way to keep busy when times were tough in the community and after serving in the Vietnam War. I didn't want to turn into just being anybody. I wanted to stay away from drugs and staying away from alcohol. I had to keep my mind occupied. So every time I used to go to town, I used to bring a log from town, you know, just three, four blocks away. There was a lot of uh, materials, and plus I used to go to the dump and get a lot of stuff from over there, like uh, 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 cement and... uh, iron and cans, aluminum cans. If you notice, the castles are uh, have a lot of aluminum tops and a lot of aluminums. The result is a house with two towers surrounded by an array of sculptural and artistic elements. Imagine how many times I have gone up and down these buildings. One-tenth of all the labor is just going up and down these buildings. Cano's castle has become a tourist draw in Antonito. Espinoza has this message for anyone who visits. What I hope that they see here, if you see the writings on the wall there, Jesus' castles, La Virgen de Guadalupe, El Castillo, it's all about the God. It's all about Jesus. It, it opens your mind that there is a life story that this uh, place has to say. Our thanks to Denverite's Kevin Beatty for that interview. Kevin's taken lots of photos on this leg of our trip. We'll share pictures of Cano's Castle and the church in Conejos at CPR.org. 
To the west of here, CPR arts and entertainment reporter Monica Castillo is also on a road trip. She's headed to Telluride for the return of this weekend's film festival. She caught up with some of the behind-the-scenes players who make the annual tradition a success. Karen Sanchez is a true believer in the Telluride Film Festival. This year's edition will be her 28th trip to the storied festival in the San Juan Mountains. She started attending the festival after moving back home to Loveland to work on her own movies. A former boss told her about Telluride. Because he said, you know, you have an amazing film festival in Colorado. It's the Telluride Film Festival. They do some incredible programming. And I want you to promise me that you'll get in touch with them when you get there and become involved because it will help you stay in touch with the film culture and it'll keep you um, engaged in what's happening outside of Colorado. Sanchez arrived at the festival in 1993 as an intern. She bunked with three other women in a boarding house that first year. Two of her first roommates have gone on to work in film, one as a producer and the other as a filmmaker. It's just kind of interesting because you have just this um, amazing caliber of quality of films and history and talent there. But everybody's like sitting, you know, on the sidewalks, drinking their coffee and checking out this, you know, the sunset over the canyon at night. And it it, is so it's just it becomes sort sort of this real magical place. That concept of a magical place that appears once every so often brings to mind the musical Brigadoon. In fact, the festival's hospitality center takes its name from the mythical Scottish village that appears once every 100 years. Rigadoon, as a motion picture, has been hailed as the brightest singing and dancing spectacle since An American in Paris. A whopping new screen triumph by the same star, the same director, and the same producer who gave you that Academy Award-winning musical. Fellow volunteer Teresa Garcia is returning to Telluride this year for her third time. Garcia and her friends are just a few of the several hundred volunteers who help the festival run smoothly. We say that we're going to spend Labor Day there every year for the rest of our lives. There are older volunteers like at at my theater who have done that. Like they are best friends. They don't live in the same place. They meet every year and go to Telluride. And that's what they do. That's their like friend trip. Both Sanchez and Garcia have had their share of celebrity sightings at the festival, but some of the most memorable parts of the volunteer experience are things like running into an old college friend at the Telluride Farmer's Market or preparing the theater for festival crowds. Unlike Sanchez, Garcia is not in the film industry. She's just a film buff excited to spend a weekend in the mountains. Being a Coloradan, like, I don't think we feel like we need excuses or permission to go anywhere and go to the mountains and go explore Colorado. Like, that just always feels like a given. But Telluride's far away and expensive. And so it is really nice to know that there's like a set time that I will go and I will get my Telluride fix. Away from the theaters where many volunteers are stationed, Justin Calvin will be hard at work trekking supplies to and from parties thrown by studios and distributors. In his downtime, Calvin will be able to catch some of their movies. Um, I love that part of Colorado and the drive out there. I like being out there. Being a big fan of movies and stuff, it was just whatever job I could do. Many of the regular festival goers, like Sanchez, are just excited to build their version of Brigadoon once again. I know this year, 2021, isn't perfect. It isn't what I thought it would be. But at the same time, it's like, I don't care. Whatever the experience is, it'll be one for the books. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News.
The 48th annual Telluride Film Festival runs through Monday. Finally today, our two-week road trip may be winding down, but Colorado Matters is always on a journey. And our next one is literary. My co-host Ryan Warner is on the line now with the latest pick for Turn the Page. Hey, Ryan. Howdy, Avery. What are we reading? It's a thriller, and I'm truly thrilled about it because it comes from best-selling <laughs> Denver author Peter Heller. His previous books include The Dog Stars and The Painter. What is his latest? It's called The Guide, set in an elite fishing lodge in Colorado. And like those earlier books, it rejoices in the natural world, but dabbles in the dark side of humanity. And that's actually something an old friend of Heller's talked to him about once. She said, dang, where did all this darkness come from? I mean, the teenage boy that I knew wasn't that dark. So get a copy of The Guide, read it with us, and then meet the author in a virtual event September 30th. Tickets are free at cpr.org slash turn the page. Thanks, Ryan. Absolutely. My co-host Ryan Warner with the latest pick for our reading circle. It's The Guide by Denver novelist Peter Heller. Again, details at cpr.org slash turn the page. I'm Pamela Trujillo. I'm the owner of the Ruby Slipper in Alamosa. And this is Colorado Matters on the Road. The team guiding our journey is... Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Nell London. In Alamosa, this is Colorado Matters on the road again from CPR News and KRCC.